Good morning. morning. It's really good to be with you this morning. Um, On Tuesday night, we arrived back from a week or so in Paris, uh, which included three days in Disneyland. So when I say it's good to be back with you, I mean that sincerely. (laughs) If anyone believes hell doesn't exist, uh, I suggest you go to that Disney place for a few days. Agreed. Um, But this morning, I want to talk about who we are, what we're not anymore, but I'm not going to talk about where we are and not necessarily in that order. So don't worry, it'll make sense as we go on. Um, But as the church, we use lots of different ways to describe ourselves. There's the word church itself, or we might describe ourselves as disciples, or believers, or followers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the idea of the body as a picture of the church. Some of us are eyes, some of us are hands, some of us are feet. Uh, especially at BCC, some of us are very effective mouths. (laughs) In in Ephesians, Paul talks about the armour of God that Christians wear, which conjures up a a picture of the church as an army. Uh, And in the book of Revelation, the church is described as the bride of Christ. But there's another way the Bible refers to us, which is maybe a bit less vivid than the others, but it's used all the way through the New Testament. And it's two words. In Christ. In Christ. If we're Christians, part of the church, then we're in Christ. And that's what I want to explore today. What does it mean to be in Christ? Now, in some ways, I I find it quite a peculiar description, in Christ. Usually when we say in something, we're referring to a place. So if I'm trying to cook something, I might ask Marie, where are the eggs? And she'll reply, They're in the fridge. In the morning, when the children are getting ready for school, I'll often hear one of them shout, Mum, where are my shoes? And she'll say, They're in the bathroom where you left them. But it's always, Mum, where are my shoes? Never, Dad, where are my shoes? I I, I don't know what that's about. And then there's the usual question on a Sunday morning. Marie, have you seen my best false teeth? Yes, David, they're in... Well, you, you get the idea. But when we talk about being in Christ, we're not talking about in as a place. We're talking about being a part of Christ, about being associated with Christ. It's not about where we are, it's about what we are, who we are. There are lots of us here who work in the NHS, in the NHS. It's not a place, it's who we are, what we do. And it's a similar thing when we talk about someone being in the army or in the police. So when the Bible talks about us as being in Christ, it's not a description of where we are. It's it's a different and really useful way to think about who we are. It's the very essence of Christian life. And it's by far the most frequent way the New Testament refers to us. One of the most frequent words we often use to describe ourselves is the word Christian. It's short and simple, straightforward. But surprisingly, the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. In contrast, the Bible describes us as being in Christ over 150 times, which I find quite staggering, really. I didn't count them all myself, by the way. I got Lewis to do that for me last night. (laughs) If he looks a bit sleepy this morning, it's because he's been up all night counting. Nothing to do with my preaching. So this morning, I want to explore being in Christ. And we'll look at a few, but we're not going to look at every single one of those 150 mentions. 
Now, Paul in particular makes a big deal of comparing being in Christ to being in Adam. And to understand this, we need to grasp a concept called federal headship. It's not something we think about very often, and it's a bit of a technical term from covenant theology. But most of the world operates under this system to some degree or other. Essentially, a group of people is represented by a single individual. So, for example, when David Cameron goes to a meeting of world leaders and commits that the UK will do something or other, the UK has to do it. We're all accountable for what he says or does, whether we were there at the meeting or not, even if we never voted for him. So David Cameron is the federal head of the United Kingdom. And in a similar way, another example is uh, Germany. They were accountable for what its leaders did in the Second World War. Even if you were a German who didn't support the invasion of Poland or any of the other horrific things that Hitler did in the war, all of Germany was accountable because he was the federal head of Germany at that time. Now, if we take humanity as a whole, there are two federal heads. The first one is Adam, who sinned and left all of mankind guilty, condemned and spiritually dead. And the second one is Christ Jesus, who made us righteous, free, and spiritually alive. And the Bible's very clear. Spiritually, you have one federal head. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're judged and condemned in Adam or you're saved in Christ. In some ways, this might seem terribly unfair. Why should someone be in Adam? Why should they be accountable for something Adam did? Why should I be condemned for something? something stupid he did all those years ago and it can be a hard message especially when we've got friends and loved ones who aren't yet in christ but there is no in-between option you're either saved in christ or you're spiritually dead in adam does that make sense yeah so let's have a look at this in scripture um Paul talks about this in a very detailed way in Romans chapter 5, if you want to read that later. That that can be your homework for today. Next week, come back and tell Richard all about Romans 5. He'll be very impressed. Um, But Paul also mentions it briefly in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look at now. And looking at verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we can remain dead in Adam or we can choose life in Christ. One of the things I find when I talk about my faith outside of church is people don't think they need Christ. They can follow the explanation, Jesus died for sin and they can be free from sin and its consequences if they accept Jesus. But they find the idea that they are sinners very offensive. They don't see that they're going to be judged and condemned because they don't think they're that bad. Sure, they're not perfect, who is? But they're not bad enough for hell, so they don't need to be in Christ, do they? But as as we've explored, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no in-between. We can't cheapen the gospel by pretending it's not true. And it would be a really hard message if God hadn't made such a glorious way to be alive, to be reconciled with him again. But if we're not alive in Christ, we're condemned in Adam. 
So how do we get from being in Adam to being in Christ? What's the mechanism? Do we just say the sinner's prayer and it's done? Or is there more to it than that? I think we often describe being saved in quite a formulaic way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, then died on our behalf, taking our punishment, and we can be at one with God again. And that's all true and fine as far as it goes. But the truth is actually far more profound than that. Our old self is actually crucified with Jesus and we have a brand new resurrection life. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6 and we'll have a look at it there. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been reunited with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, not only did Jesus die in our place, when we're baptised, we're baptised into his death. When we're baptised into Jesus, we die as well. Our old self, the sinful, condemned self that was in Adam, is dead. And we have a new resurrection life in Jesus. Our old self was enslaved to sin. It couldn't help sinning. However much we tried to sin, we couldn't help ourselves. It was part of our nature. In Adam we were slaves to sin. But that sinful nature is now crucified. We're free from sin. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. And it also has profound implications. We are a brand new life. It tells us in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Knowing this must affect how we live. I think we sometimes look at ourselves as a work in progress. We talk about we're not perfect yet. God is still working things out in us, gradually changing us into the person he wants us to be. And maybe sometimes we use that as an excuse when we sin. Oh, God's still working on me. Sorry, but he isn't. You're already a new creation in Christ Jesus. Think about what's happening spiritually. Is your old sinful in Adam self gradually dying on the cross and the new creation gradually taking over a bit at a time? No. When you were baptised into Christ Jesus, you become a dead person raised to a brand new life. 
But how does that work? If the old self, the old me that was in Adam is now dead, and I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, why do I still sin? Why do I still stumble and make mistakes? Well, here's the answer. You don't have to anymore. Sin has no power over you. God's not trying to renovate us. He's not scrubbing us up to be a cleaner, better person. We're new people. He's given us a brand new heart, no longer chained to sin. We have to know and believe and remember every day that our old sinful life has been buried with Christ. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus and sin has no power over us. So we're in Christ and not in Adam anymore. And that's an amazing thing all by itself. We're no longer subject to the curse of having Adam as our spiritual head. We're not condemned anymore. I remember a few years ago, there was an Indian chap at Grapevine who had a ministry of signs and wonders. I think his name was Ram Babu, something like that. You remember him? And he told us his story about how he was high up in the Hindu faith uh, and how Jesus called him um, and how it changed his life completely. And I think he did some healing at Grapevine um, and he did a couple of sessions. Um, But I remember while he was there, they interviewed him and someone asked him, Rambabu, what is the greatest miracle you've ever seen? And his answer was salvation. The greatest miracle is salvation. And that answer's always stuck with me. Salvation is the greatest miracle, the greatest of God's blessings. And if God did absolutely nothing else for us, giving us a new life in Christ would be enough to deserve never-ending praise and worship. But it doesn't stop there. Incredibly, there's even more blessings. God didn't just choose to save us to free us from death. By his grace, he's given us other blessings on top. So can you turn to the first chapter of Ephesians and we'll look at some of those. Uh, And I'm going to start at verse 3, because Paul opens the letter with a list of blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." 
He wasn't so big on punctuation, Paul. Um, so, I mean, let's just work through that list in Ephesians. Not only are we rescued from death by being in Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters. We're redeemed. We're forgiven our trespasses. God has revealed his plans to us. He's going to unite all things in Christ, in heaven and earth. And we have an inheritance. It's not enough that we're saved and adopted as sons and daughters. We also have an inheritance to come. And we have the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of that inheritance. It just gets better and better, doesn't it? Does anyone want to go back to being in Adam? No. Just checking. But in Adam, we weren't just separated from God. We were also separated from each other. And this is clear all the way through the Bible. People just don't get along with each other. The pages of the Bible are full of bitterness and bloodshed. In Genesis, the first thing Adam does after eating the forbidden fruit is to blame Eve. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Bitterness and blame right from the start. And then just a generation later, Cain murders his brother Abel. And how does he react when God asks him where his brother is? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, I think God's reaction to Cain tells us that we are all our brother's keepers. Our natural tendency, the way we behave in Adam, is to be independent and not to get too involved in other people's lives. We don't mind helping a bit if we've got time, after we've finished indulging our own lives. But are we giving everything for other people, or just what's left over? Can you turn with me to Philippians in chapter 2? starting at verse 1 so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests in other, of others when our old self, our in Adam self dies, as well as being reconciled to God, we're reconciled to each other in Christ. Our love for each other in the church is a reflection of the sacrificial love that Jesus has for us. And our new life in Christ doesn't just affect our individual lives, but also our relationships with others. Jesus showed us that to love is to live for others, not ourselves. And we need to live in the power of that new life in Christ. It's not possible to be a one man or a one woman church. We're all part of a body of believers. God has given the Holy Spirit to all of us, but none of us has every single gift or every single ministry. We need to work together, every one of us, to contribute our individual gifts and ministries to the life of the church. And that's the key word, life. You can't just attend church. You have to be part of it and give your life to the body of Christ. You have to be in Christ. And living like this is how God intends the church to be. And it's essential because it affects how the world sees the church. 
And we can actually read about the fruits of living like this in Acts chapter 4. And from verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each other as any had need. And this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be together in Christ. We read in John's Gospel that at the Last Supper, Jesus prayed for unity among his followers. I'm not going to read it now, but it's the high priestly prayer in John 17. And one of the greatest symbols of our community is when we remember the Last Supper and share communion together. So I want to close by doing that. I'll read a short passage from John's Gospel, chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whosoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I'll just close with a short blessing this morning before we share fellowship with tea and coffee. Uh, And I'm just going to read from Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds forever in Christ Jesus. Amen.